Revelation chapter 2 is our text, starting at verse 8. The persecuted church at Smyrna. That's what it's all about. And um, this is the second letter to the church. The first letter was the church at Ephesus. And uh, that was the church that was doing well. They, they loved the Lord and they were growing and things were going well. And uh, now we have the church at Smyrna, which they have a lot going for them too, but they are a suffering church. They are a difficult church. We started in chapter 1 with uh, this picture. We'll go back to this picture. We started with this picture of Jesus, this vision that John had of Jesus standing among the seven candlesticks holding the seven stars. Now it's symbolic, but Jesus tells us what the symbolism is. He says the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So Jesus stands among his churches. The seven stars, he says, are the seven angels. So we know that the seven stars are the seven angels. The question is, well, who are the seven angels? We don't know that for sure. My guess is that they are the leaders of the church. They are the pastors of the church. And so the, the angels are the messengers to the church, the pastors to the church. So God, uh, Jesus stands among his churches. He holds the leadership of the churches in his hand because he is the head of the church. And uh, the pastors are merely the under shepherds expressing his will. And uh, he offers words of encouragement to the churches. The seven churches are the churches in Asia. These are the seven churches. He started with Ephesus. Remember, we know a lot about Ephesus from the Bible. The Bible teaches us that Paul was there the first time and got things started, but he didn't stay there very long. And uh, then later, Aquila and Priscilla were there. Apollos was there. Then Paul came back the second time, and he stayed there two years, a long, long time. And after him uh, was Timothy. I uh, was there, and after him, John himself was the pastor at Ephesus, and John wrote a letter to his old church where he was the pastor. Just 40 miles to the north of Ephesus, you can see there on the map, just 40 miles to the north is Smyrna. Now, we don't know how Smyrna and the other churches began, but it does say, it does say in Acts, as Paul was in Ephesus preaching, and there was a big revival, and people were getting saved, and people were turning from uh, the goddess of the Ephesians. They were turning from Diana or Artemis, and they were starting to worship Jesus. That uh, It caused such a turmoil that it says, all those that lived in Asia heard about it. That's what the Bible says. So we know that the word spread to all the other cities of Asia, that the word spread to Smyrna and Laodicea and all the other churches that are there on the map. The word spread to all those places. And so it's not too much of a leap then to say that Ephesus is what started it all, but that the uh, Christians spread and started churches in all these other cities too. So we don't know exactly how they got started, but it makes sense that uh, from the work in Ephesus, it began to spread. And first of all, it spread northward to, uh, to Smyrna. Now Smyrna, just the name itself is kind of instructive. There's some meaning uh, attached just to the name of Smyrna. Do you guys know what Smyrna means? I'll give you a hint. You take the three letters that are in the middle, M, Y, R, you have myrrh. Uh, Smyrna is the, just another form of the word myrrh. Myrrh was the sweet-smelling aroma, sweet-smelling uh, perfume, but it was used for a funeral. It was used for a dead body. And so there's some significance to that meaning of that word, that Smyrna would be a church that would suffer persecution. Smyrna would be a church where people were thrown in jail and where people were put to death for their faith in Christ Jesus. But out of those terrible persecutions, out of that suffering, out of being jailed and being put to death, came some sweet-smelling perfume. God made it into something sweet. God made it into something wonderful 
that had eternal benefits uh, to his people. So there's some significance even to that name of, of Smyrna. If you uh, were to travel to those places today where the original churches were, if you, if you went to the first church, if you went to Ephesus today, you would find that there's no church in Ephesus because you'll find there's no city in Ephesus. There's just a bunch of ruins in Ephesus. Now, you can tell by the ruins, it used to be a big city. It used to be a very uh, glorious city with uh, wonderful architecture and things like that. But that was a long time ago. That was at the time this letter was written, that it was a prosperous, thriving, large city. But now it sits in the middle of nowhere. There's no city around it. There's no population around it. It's just ruins now. No church. But you remember, that's what Jesus said in his first letter to Ephesus. Remember, he said, you've left your first love. You better return. You better remember what Christ has done for you. If you don't return, if you don't remember, you remember what Jesus said he was going to do? He says, I will return and I will remove your lampstand. I will remove the church. And evidently that's what happened. That's what happened in history. The church is no longer there. The city is no longer there. Uh, just these ruins in Ephesus. If you go 40 miles to the north, to Smyrna, you'll find a huge city. A very large city. Four and a half million people live in Smyrna today. They changed the name, so it's not a Smyrna now. They changed it back in 1930. They changed it from Smyrna to Izmir. Kind of the same uh, phrasing, but just rearranged the letters a little bit. So the city of Izmir, Turkey, is one of the largest cities in Turkey. Four and a half million people. There are more people than live in Nebraska. I live in, this one, in one city in, uh, in Turkey, Izmir. It's a large, populous city today, just like it was a large, populous city back then, but it's even larger today. And there's still a church there in Smyrna. There's still a Christian influence. There's an ancient Christian tradition, ancient Christian people, and they are still preaching a Christianity, still preaching the gospel here in Smyrna. Now, they are a, a small minority. The majority is a Muslim, the majority of the population, but they still have that long-lasting Christian tradition in the city of Smyrna. And uh, so Jesus' letter to the church at Smyrna uh, still is applicable for us today and still applicable for Christians there in Smyrna today. But throughout history, the church at Smyrna has been and, and continue to be today because they're a small minority. Uh, it is a persecuted minority. They are the persecuted church. That's true. Uh, at the time that John wrote this letter, they were being persecuted under the Roman Empire. And it has been true through the centuries that the church in Smyrna has suffered greatly under persecution. And, and the main point of this letter is that, yeah, there's going to be suffering. But when we are suffering, when we are persecuted, we have someone to cling to. We have a rock, a rock that is higher to, uh, than us. We have Jesus who will hold us fast in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our persecution. When we are suffering, we must cling to Jesus he will hold us fast. So let's look at our text uh, and, and see what it says. Uh, we start off with this, that Jesus offers eternal rewards for faithful works. The text actually has my outline in it. Imagine that. that the outline is from Jesus. Jesus gave me the outline. He gives it to us in uh, verses 8 and 9. He says, To the angel of the church at Smyrna, to the pastor of the church at Smyrna, write this, These things says the first and last, he who is dead and came to life. I know three things. This is the outline. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty. So if you look at the outline, uh, you can see that the outline has works and tribulation 
and poverty. These are the three things that Jesus recognized about the church at, at Smyrna. But he begins with their works. He says, I know your works. Now, I know that at first that sounds, it sounds like it could be bad, right? If somebody comes up to you and says, I know what you did. You know, that sounds kind of sinister, doesn't it? That sounds kind of threatening, doesn't it? Uh, you know, maybe there's something you don't want people to know about. But uh, when, when the word gets out, then you're kind of intimidated by that. And Jesus says, I know your works. I know what you did. But he says it in a positive way. He says it in, in a way that is a blessing. He says, I know that you're going through some difficult times. I know you're suffering, but I know you're doing your best to hang in there. I know you're being faithful. I know you're standing true to the word, that you're faithful to Jesus, even in the face of persecution. And he says, I, I will remember that, and I will reward you for those works. Uh, that's basically what he says. And, and remember, each, each time he introduces himself, he's, he, it's from Jesus, but it describes Jesus in a different way. Uh, the first time to the church of Ephesus, he said, I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and Omega. Uh, this time, the, or the one who stands in, among the seven candlesticks and holds the seven stars. That's how he described himself. This time, he says, um, I am the first and the last who was dead and came to life. That's how he describes himself now to the church of Smyrna. To the church of Smyrna, he said, I know you guys are facing persecution. Some of you are being thrown in jail. Some of you are being... But to death, some of you are dying. You're having funerals for Christians who are standing true to the gospel. He says, I want you to know that Jesus experienced the same thing. Jesus was ridiculed. He was mocked. He was rejected. He was tortured. He suffered. He bled. And he died. So, so Jesus was talking to the church of Smyrna, and he says, I've been there. I've been through what you've been through. I've endured what you are enduring right now. I even died. I was put to death because they rejected me, because they hated me. They put me to death. And yet I am he who came to life, the glorious resurrection that gives us hope for the future, that he is the Savior, that he is the Messiah, that he died in our place, not for his own sins, but he died for us so that we might be saved. A glorious gospel right here in this introduction, that Jesus was the one who endured persecution and death, but he came back from that to give us hope for the future so you can hang in there and be faithful during your persecution and suffering also. And he, and he gives us hope for that. This is in verse 10. In 10, he says, hang in there, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Well, there's some hope there, isn't there? He says, be faithful unto death. He doesn't say, I'm going to remove all the persecution from you so that you can live comfortably and in peace. No, that doesn't happen. Yeah, you're still going to be persecuted. You're still going to be thrown in jail. You're still going to be put to death. But if you can, if you can just hang in there and be faithful until death, until, until God takes you home, until you're put to death for your faith, until that moment, be true to God, be faithful to him, trust in him, believe in him, rest in him, believe his promise, be faithful to his word, and I will give you the crown of life. He gives us this, this little glimpse of the eternal reward. He says, your, your suffering is real. He's not minimizing the suffering. The suffering is real. The suffering is bad. But he said the suffering is com compared to eternity, compared to the glories of eternity, compared to the rewards of the crown of life, your suffering now will be gone. It'll be done. In fact, he, we'll talk about this later, but he says 10 days. He's like, you got to suffer for 10 days. But come on, you can hang in there for 10 days. Hang in there for 10 days, and then you have all eternity to enjoy the rewards, the crown 
of life. The crown of life is a wonderful uh, blessing. It's also promised in James, in James chapter 1, verse 12. It said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation or testing. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. There you have it, the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. If you love God and you endure temptation and testing and trials and tribulations for his sake, then you will be given the crown of life. So there's many different crowns in the Bible that are offered to us. And the crown is simply a sign for eternal rewards, that we will be eternally rewarded with, with glory that, that so far outweighs anything that we can do on this earth. That's, that's the whole point of, of the crown, that anybody can earn a crown. In, in this life, there are very few who actually are kings, right? There's very few uh, who actually rise to be president of the United States or king over their country. There's very few. Uh, it's very rare for anybody to, to achieve that status. But to have a crown of life is open to anybody who is faithful and true to God during temptation and trials and tribulation and persecution. And the, the wonderful eternal reward and the benefit is just ridiculously out of proportion for anything that we do. It's, it's not something that you earn. It's something that is just given to you, bestowed upon you, because... Because you were faithful in a little, he gives you so much. He gives you such a wonderful, eternal reward when all you have to do is be faithful in so little. So those are the eternal rewards. And that's what he mentions first. He starts off by saying, I know your works. I know you're, you're, you're trying to be true and faithful and hanging in there. And he, he pats him on the back and says, keep it up. Keep it up and you will have a, an eternal crown of life, eternal glory in heaven. One of my earliest memories of church, I remember being in church, and uh, one of my earliest uh, memories of a pastor uh, who, who spoke to me, because I, I was just a, a kid, and I wasn't used to pastors coming up and talking to me. But uh, when I was a kid, my, my, uh, after a, uh, a message, uh, the pastor came, and, and I mean, he came right up to me and talked to me. And it was kind of interesting, because uh, during the message, I was, I was sitting by my friend during the message, and in order for me to sit by my friend in church, my, my parents, uh, I don't know if, you're, if you parents are like this, but my parents gave me this really strict speech before I sat with my friend in church. And you've probably heard that speech. You've probably given that speech before, right? You will sit there. You will be quiet. You will listen. You will not talk to your friend. You will not pass notes to your friend. Uh, so I heard that loud and clear. I heard the message. And so I was sitting there uh, by my friend in church. And uh, and guess what my friend was doing? My friend didn't get that lecture, all right? <laughs> I'm sure his parents loved him too, but he didn't get the same lecture that I got. So, so my friend, he's whispering to me the whole time, and he's writing things and showing to me all that time. And, 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 and I, was, I was trying. Right? I, I was trying to pick I was trying to ignore my friend. But, you know, sometimes it's hard. And, uh, and after that, uh, the pastor saw that. And the pastor came right up to me. Uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> but, but he saw what was going on, and he saw that I was trying. I was trying to listen instead. And, uh, and he just came up to me and, and in an encouraging way. He just said, I'm glad, I'm glad you were trying to pay attention. You keep up the good work. He just said some, some word of encouragement like that. Because he saw what was going on, and he saw that I was trying. And he gave me a word of encouragement. 
And like I said, that's one of the few things I remember. And why do I remember that? Because it was a word of encouragement. It was something positive that was told me by my pastor that stuck with me. It's something that I needed to hear at that time. And uh, it was a word of encouragement. And so Jesus offers this word of encouragement to a suffering church. He says, keep it up. Keep doing the good work. And you will be rewarded for your faithful works during the time of, a per of a persecution. You will be rewarded. So that's the, the first uh, message that we need to hear from this, that God knows our works and he will reward us eternally for them. The second message is this, that Jesus grants fearless peace during tribulation. Yeah, the tribulation is coming. The tribulation is real. It's not minim minimized at all. It's significant. It's going to be harsh. It's going to be tough. But during that tribulation, you can have peace and you can have no fear. There's no need to fear during that tribulation. This is what the text says. I know your works, tribulation, that's the second one, tribulation and poverty, but you are rich. I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear. There's the fearlessness. You have no need to fear. Do not fear any of those things which you're about to suffer. Oh, you're going to suffer. The suffering is real. It's there. You will suffer. But no need to fear. Indeed, it's going to be bad. The devil is about to throw some of you into prison. You will be tested. You will have tribulation. But hang in there. It's only going to be 10 days. Now, there's a few things about this that are, might be difficult to understand. Uh, the first thing is he says that there are those that are Jews that are not. They're the synagogue of Satan. Now, some people try to explain this. That there was a certain sect of Judaism. There was a certain group that he calls out and uh, singles them out for rebuke and says they were known as the synagogue of Satan. I mean, that might be, but more likely, I would guess, it's just his way of saying that there are the, the Jews out there that are proud of their Jewish roots and they are faithful to the Old Testament, but they rejected Jesus. They rejected the Messiah. And because they rejected the Messiah, they are the synagogue of Satan. He says they're, they're, they're not God's people anymore. They're being used by the devil to persecute God's people. They're being used by Satan to persecute the church, the true people of God. And so I don't think it's a specific thing that he's, he's signaling out there. He's just saying that there are some, some Jews out there who think, just like Paul was, like, like Paul was a Jew who thought he was being faithful to the Old Testament as he was persecuting the Christians, but uh, he came to find out that he was not really being faithful to God at all. Uh, but Satan was using him to persecute the Christians. I think that's what he says there, and we'll, we'll see here in just a moment that that is true, that that is significant, that part of their persecution was from the Jews. They expected to be persecuted from the heathens, from the unbelievers, but that was just part of their persecution. Uh, the rest of the persecution came from the Jews themselves, and they, they didn't really expect that. Uh, they thought that the Jews would have more sympathy for the Christians, but they did not. The, the other thing that might be hard to, to understand about this is when, when he says you will have tribulation 10 days. Now, I don't think the 10 days is literal, that, he, that from the day that he wrote this letter, there would be 10 24-hour periods, 10 days, and then the persecution would be done. It, it was not meant to be 10 literal days. But there's a couple different ways you could look at it. It could be, um, I, I don't think this is likely, but it's possible. It's possible that it could be 10 different periods of persecution. And so some people have pointed out, that there were 10 different Roman emperors who persecuted the church, starting with a Nero in the AD 50s, going all the way to, um, I think it was Diocletian in the 300s, like right before uh, 
you know, Constantine made it the official religion and the persecution ended. You know, right before then you had one final persecution under Diocletian, and there were ten complete different emperors who persecuted the church. So some people say, well, the ten days stands for the ten emperors, the ten periods of persecution of the church. Now that's possible. It could be that that's what he's talking about. But but I think it's more likely that it's just kind of a, a number that's thrown out there that's not meant to be literal days. It's not meant to be ten periods. But it, it's just meant to, to mean that it will be for it's real and it will be for a time, but it's for a time that you can endure. Uh, ten days is something you can handle, right? Um, it's something that you can look forward to. And we saw that even in the troubling times that we have now. In the troubling times that we have now, uh, do you remember how everything's, how our lockdown all started? It started with 15 days to flatten the curve. Now, how many days ago was that? That was a, that was a lot of days ago, right? But, uh, hey, 15 days to flatten the curve. Okay, you know, we can handle that. You know, just two weeks, a little bit more than two weeks. You know, we can handle that. Those, that's something that we can uh, grasp onto. That's something that we can plan in our mind for the next two weeks, for the next 15 days. Well, I think that's what he's saying here with, with 10 days. 10 days means, yeah, it's going to be significant. It's going to be real, but it's not going to be forever. There's going to be an end to it. You will get through it, and there will be an end to the persecution. And if you hang in there, by, by the time you get out, by the time it's all over, and you look back and say, hey, it was just like 10 days. It, it just lasted for a few weeks, and then it was gone. That's what it will seem like. And for all eternity, it'll seem like, ah, it's just a little speck. You know, I barely even remember it in all eternity. But it just seems like 10 days. That, that would be my, my best guess. It could be 10 specific periods of persecution. But my guess is it's probably just a, a number thrown out there to say that it's, it's going to be real, but it's not going to be forever. It's going to be limited. But, uh, but what about the, the persecution itself? Well, we know from history, and this is very interesting, you, we know from history that Smyrna was a persecuted church. We know that there were many martyrs who, put, who were put to death in Smyrna. In fact, one of the most famous martyrs in all history was the pastor at Smyrna. The pastor at Smyrna was one of the famous martyrs. It was Polycarp. Polycarp is an interesting historical figure. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And his martyrdom sparked uh, really a revival. I mean, his, mar his martyrdom encouraged generations of Christians because there were uh, eyewitnesses who wrote down the, the story of his martyrdom. And we have the facts of his martyrdom, how he was persecuted and how he died. Polycarp, as a young boy, was probably saved, or as a young man, was probably saved and discipled by John himself. He was a disciple of John. John is now writing a letter. It could be that Polycarp now was a, a young man in his 20s he could have been the pastor of Smyrna already. He could, this, he, the star, the angel of Smyrna that John is writing to. John could be writing a letter to his young pupil, to his young disciple, who is now the young pastor at Smyrna in his 20s. He would later be martyred, 60 years later, he'd be martyred uh, at the age of eight, probably 86 in 156 AD is when he died. But he might have been the pastor at Smyrna even when John was writing this letter to the angel of the church at Smyrna. In his old age, in his 80s, is when the persecution began to, to uh, pinpoint him. The authorities began to come after him. And he, and he knew they were coming after him. And so he kind of moved around a little bit. He left his house and went out to live in a, in a house in the country to get away from the persecution because he knew the soldiers were coming after him. 
But even then, they were persistent. They kept coming after him. They kept trying to find him. And, and finally, he got to the point where he, uh, he had a vision. He writes of a vision that he had, a dream that he had in his sleep. He was lying on his bed at night, and uh, his pillow burst into flames. Sounds like a nightmare, doesn't it? A bad dream that he had. He woke up and immediately announced to everybody in the house the first thing that morning. He said, I will die in the fire as a martyr. He accepted it. He accepted it. This was a vision from God. This was God's plan for him. He accepted it. He, he wasn't going to run and hide from the authorities anymore. He knew that this was from God. He announced it to everybody. I'm going to be martyred. I'm going to die in the fire. Well, sure enough, the authorities found him in his country house. They came to, to get him. They came to get him, and uh, he offered them food. He said, sit down, have a meal. He fed them. They asked him. I guess they thought they better be nice to him, too, because he's an old man, and he just fed them a meal. And so they, they asked him, said, do you have any last requests? Is there anything that you need before we take you away? And he said, uh, can I have an hour to pray? And they said, yeah. So they waited. They were probably still eating while, while he prayed for an hour. Actually, he prayed for two hours. And they let him. He prayed for two hours. He prayed. And they let him pray for two hours. I guess their stomachs were full, so it was all right. He could pray for two hours. And uh, finally, he was done praying. And they, they took him back to town. Um, and they took him back to the proconsul. And they did this publicly in the arena where they were going to you know, release the wild animals and burn people at the stake, where they had all those terrible things going on in the public arena. And the proconsul uh, really didn't want to persecute him either. I mean, here's this 86-year-old man standing in front of him. And uh, a nice, compassionate man. Everybody likes him. You know, never hurt anybody. And so the proconsul is like, hey, listen, all you have to do, it's, it's real easy. He says, just renounce Jesus. Just renounce Jesus. Just offer a little bit of incense to Caesar. That's all. all you have to do is worship Caesar. And just a pinch, just a little pinch of incense to Caesar, and uh, we'll let you go. We won't do anything to you. We'll let you go. Just renounce Jesus, a pinch of incense to Caesar, and you're done. Go home to your family. Keep preaching whatever you're preaching. Uh, just renounce Jesus and offer some incense to Caesar. And uh, Polycarp's words were recorded for us because it was a public event. And his words are this. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? He refused to renounce Jesus. He would not blaspheme against his Savior, even though, though he knew it was certain death. Well, that kind of made the proconsul angry a little bit, so he threatened him. Again, just in case he didn't get the message, you understand, if you don't do this, if you don't renounce Jesus, then we're going to release the wild animals. We're going to burn you at the stake. It's going to be bad. He threatened him. And again, Polycarp's, Polycarp's words were recorded for us. He said this, he said, uh, you threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. Polycarp was looking at it from the view of God's view, from the view of the eternal. And he knew from eternity's view that it was much better to face the fire than anything else. And so they did. They uh, took him to where the wood was for the fire to be kindled, they went to tie him up. And uh, he had one last request. And his one last request was, please don't tie me up. 
says, I, I will stay here and I will be burned, but I, I want to be burned free, unbound. And they honored his request. They didn't tie him up. They just left him there. They started the fire. And this is how an eyewitness put it, as, the, as his body was consumed in the fire. An eyewitness said that he was burned in the fire, not as a burning flesh, but as bread baking or as gold and silver refined in a furnace. It was a very public spectacle that day. It was written down for all to, to read. Uh, the story was spread from town to town, from church to church. Christians were encouraged, just like myrrh, on a, on a body, on a dead body. The dead body producing the sweet smell of, of myrrh. Polycarp was martyred. He suffered and died in Smyrna as the pastor of the church in Smyrna. But this sweet fragrance was released. And people to this day are encouraged by the story of, of suffering and martyrdom that happened in the city of Smyrna. This uh, letter to the church was prophetic, and it happened. There was tribulation, but Polycarp had fearless peace in the midst of that tribulation. That's the second point. Works, tribulation, and uh, then finally, poverty. Jesus gives spiritual wealth during physical poverty. You might be physically poor, but you're spiritually wealthy if you're faithful to God. And that's what he said. We already read this in verse 9. I know your works, tribulation, and poverty. Poverty is the third one. And then just that little parenthesis. And that little parenthesis is so sweet, isn't it? It's so special. Yeah, you're poor. Yeah, you don't have much of this earthly goods. Now you compare yourself to the neighbors, and uh, you, you don't compare very favorably, do you? But you are rich. In those things that really matter, in those things which are eternal, you are rich. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. In uh, 2 Corinthians 6, he describes his own ministry in Corinth. And he says, we were as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. That's how he described himself in Corinth. Because we were there preaching in Corinth, and uh, we were poor, but we were making many people rich. Why? We're, we were preaching the gospel. We brought to you Jesus. And when you came to know Jesus, you found the greatest wealth, the greatest treasure in the world. We made many rich. We had nothing, but yet we possessed everything spiritually. That's how Paul describes his own ministry. He describes Jesus in the same book, in 2 Corinthians, in the same letter. He says, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. Jesus was rich, and yet he became poor, that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That you might become spiritually rich with all the blessings of Jesus. Jesus became poor so that you might be spiritually rich. And then in James, James says, Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who loved him? We are heirs of Jesus. We are rich in the faith. We have these glorious, eternal riches. In fact, Paul describes them in Ephesians as unspeakable riches. We can't even describe them. They're indescribable riches that we have in Christ. If you know Christ is your Savior, he became poor to die for you so that you might be rich and live with him forever. 
That's the, the glory of the gospel. That's the glory of our salvation. And it's uh, untold, unspeakable riches that we have. Spiritual wealth during physical poverty. And by the way, this is the opposite of the church in Laodicea. We'll talk to that about that later. But later on, church number seven, letter number seven to the churches is to the church of Laodicea. And to the church of Laodicea, he says, guess what? You are physically wealthy. You have it all. You are physically comfortable. No persecution. You are physically wealthy and comfortable, and you do not know that you are poor and blind and naked and miserable spiritually. See, it's the opposite. By the time you get to Laodicea, Laodicea is physically rich and spiritually poor. But here in Smyrna, they are physically poor, but spiritually rich. And which one would you rather be? Now, I see some of you th thinking about it. Well, you know, physical wealth is pretty tempting sometimes. But come on, when it comes down to it, we would much rather be physically poor and spiritually wealthy because that's what really matters. And that's what really matters for all eternity. That's the church of Smyrna. Jesus says, I know. I know your works, but I will give you eternal rewards for those works. I know your tribulation, but I will grant fearless peace during that tribulation. I know your poverty, but I've already blessed you with spiritual wealth in the midst of that physical poverty. That's what Smyrna needed to hear, and that's what we need to hear this morning also. Let's close with a word of prayer.